0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message.
1: Bible reading is from Luke chapter 19 verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and and was very wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but was but he was short and could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter,
0: Thanks, Chip and the band um, for leading us so well. If you don't know me, my name's Mike um, and it's great to be here tonight um, and to have the opportunity to share um, on the power of mission from Luke 19, to 10. And so if you aren't aware, our church is in the midst of May Missions Month, uh, which is great. What's the purpose of May Missions Month besides really good alliteration, which Christians love for whatever reason? Well... It's an opportunity to hear stories from the missionaries that we support. Um, It's an opportunity to raise funds for them. And it's an opportunity to learn from scripture about the nature of God's mission. So it's all really good stuff. But I do think that there is a risk that we kind of get the idea that mission is something that we silo off, um, that we engage with it for one month Um, and that we do it only as a part-time thing. And maybe also that it's for the special people, the ultra-Christians who are willing to go overseas or whatever it is. I want to suggest another reason for May Missions Month. It should also empower us to become missional ourselves in our lives and as a church. And our time and our culture, really, it demands this from us. It needs it. (laughs) We hear often about the declining numbers of Christians in our culture. Um, It was a big deal at the last census, you might remember. It confirmed what we all know, that the number of Christians is on the decline in Australia. And so with this in mind, you might say that the mission efforts of the Western church can sometimes seem a little bit lacklustre. And in fact, one stat that I read when I was preparing this sermon suggested that there's actually declining interest in missions from evangelical Christians in Western countries. So I've been given the topic, the power of mission, to to talk about today. And with these trends in mind, um, it immediately prompted a few questions for me. And they are, number one, is our, is our congregation, our community, the night service, involved in mission that could be described as powerful, impact, impactful and transformational, transformative? And if not, and this is the question that I want to focus on tonight, I guess it's an an open question, the first one, if not, if so. But if if we aren't, (laughs) what will actually empower us to become a missional community, a missional church? Well, if we could just go to my next slide, that would be good. In year 11 chemistry, I learnt about catalysts. Does anyone know what a catalyst is? (laughs) Good. Well, my knowledge of catalysts stems from year 11 chemistry, and I didn't have time to fact check. Um, But essentially, a catalyst is a substance that increases the rate of a chemical base reaction that would otherwise be a little bit of a fizzle. And so, a catalyst makes a reaction more vigorous, more explosive, more exciting. And like I said, I'm not a science guy, but these facts are seared into my memory after one chemistry lesson. In year 11 chemistry, I had a teacher who wasn't so loved, unfortunately, because she was a very nice person. And it was all despite her best efforts. She just was one of those teachers who wasn't very well liked by students, which is sad. And so to try and bolster her popularity with the student ranks, she started emulating another teacher who was doing very exciting experiments um, and had really good slideshows and things like that. And so one day we were doing one of these experiments and it involved catalysts. And the particular experiment, I can't remember the details of of what it was, but it was one of those ones that produced a whole lot of flames and smoke and that kind of thing, very visually impactful and so because she's safety conscious she had the fume cupboard set up but the principal was taking a potential student and their parents on a tour of the school and he thought that this experiment would be a really I guess exciting opportunity to advertise you know the facilities and different programs that the school offers but unfortunately my teacher had obviously kind of overdone the catalyst bit of that experiment. And the result definitely was exciting. The smoke and the fumes and all of that poured out of this, um, what are they called, a beaker? Until the fume cupboard actually caught on fire. <laughs> and so the catalyst, in this case, transformed an otherwise by nine. Um, fizzle of a chemical reaction into something cataclysmic. <laughs> cataclysmic. That's how you say it, I think. Something impactful. In some ways, I think that we may need a catalyst that will transform our mission activities from, you know, maybe a little bit of a fizzle, maybe not, into something, something powerful, something impactful, It's tempting, um, I think, sorry. It's tempting to think that um, the catalyst will be something from within us, like more people going to Bible college, more experience, or doing something like YWAM. I don't know. It could be a whole range of different things, all of which are really good. But we can have all of these things and still be detached from the true catalyst of mission. And so if our own efforts aren't going to catalyse mission, what will? Well, I'm going to break all the laws of preaching tonight and I'm going to begin with the answer. So if we jump right to the very end of our passage today, we see what catalyzes mission. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man Has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus Himself has a mission. He has been sent. He comes to us in order to save and seek the lost. And in other passages, we see that the whole Trinity is involved in this enterprise. So out of the depths of God's love, the Father sends the Son who freely comes to reconcile us to God. And then the Son gives us the Spirit as our friend, our guide and our comforter. And this isn't just something that God does kind of in His spare time on the side. It's not a part-time hobby. It's actually essential to His very nature, God is a missionary God. This means as the missiologist, which is someone who studies mission, David Bosch, he put it like this, the church nor any other human agent can ever be considered the author or bearer of mission. Mission is primarily and ultimately the work of the triune God, creator redeemer and sanctifier for the sake of the world. It's a good quote. Mission is catalyzed by God and by God alone. And so then the mission that we take up as individuals and as the church is nothing other than participating in his mission. So that's the answer. It's a really good theological truth and it probably feels a little bit heady and distant from our actual everyday lives. What does it actually mean to live by this truth, to embody it in the DNA of our church culture? Well, the Bible leads us to truth, not primarily through theoretical systems, but through stories. And so I think it's gonna be helpful if we work through the story that precedes verse 10, the story of Zacchaeus. Verses one to nine tell us about an encounter between Jesus and a tax collector called Zacchaeus. And the this, this story demonstrates how God catalyzes mission. So the first thing, which is the slide up there, is we're gonna have a look at Zacchaeus. And he's a bit like that kind of fizzling base reaction, you know, not much is going on. Luke tells us a bit about him. And we get the sense that he's not a very nice guy. He's nasty and greedy. Um, And he's definitely not a good candidate to become involved in God's mission. And then my next slide, um, we're gonna see that Zacchaeus encounters a powerful catalyst of mission. Um, Zacchaeus has a transformative encounter with Jesus. And I would recommend if you are playing with chemicals anytime soon, wear gloves, unlike the diagram. <laughs> and then finally, my next slide, we're gonna explore the reaction. What impacts does the interaction with Jesus have on Jesus? On Zacchaeus, sorry. So first, my next slide, please. We're introduced to Zacchaeus. Is that, did I spell something wrong? Or? Oh, no, okay, good. In verse one and two, it says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And so Zacchaeus is a bit like a fizzling base reaction, as I said. If there is anyone who's never gonna be involved in God's mission, it's him. On the surface, the story seems to have the cute factor. Sunday schools love to act out the Zacchaeus story. And we're used to images like this next one on my next slide. which show Jesus uh, Zacchaeus, sorry, the wee little man who climbed up in the tree. The cute guy with a nice smile on his face. But the first thing that we need to know about Zacchaeus is that he is not cute. So my next slide, yes, <laughs> no. <laughs> Luke describes him in two ways. He's a chief tax collector and he's rich. This description probably doesn't have the same effect on us as what it, does, what it did back for the original audience. Luke is trying to show us that Zacchaeus is a really bad guy and this is, the description really would have triggered his audience, I think. Jews under Roman rule didn't hate anyone more than tax collectors. As a tax collector in the Greco Roman world, Zacchaeus actually belonged to a class of people who was basically hated by everyone. What's the problem with tax collectors, you might ask? Most of us probably don't really think twice about the Australian Tax Office. The ATO are about as benign as it gets. Just just ask multinational corporations like Apple or Google or Amazon. They don't pay much tax. The Jews had a very different experience with tax collectors. The Romans had extensive experience extracting taxes from their conquered people. The Roman government knew that as soon as a Roman person, a Roman tax collector arrived in a conquered area, all the money would disappear into a black market of backyard bartering and the like. So a foreigner who didn't speak the local language wasn't going to be able to find the wealth and then tax it. And so to deal with this, the Romans recruited local people to be their tax collectors. And they armed them with Roman soldiers and they paid them by allowing them to keep any excess Taxes that they collected. And so they got rich by overcharging, exploiting, and impoverishing their own people. They were even known to send troops into people's homes who they alleged were withholding unreported goods. So naturally, tax collectors were not popular. They were seen by the Jews as traitors to the nation, to their families, and to God himself. Now, Zacchaeus is described not just as a tax collector, but as the chief tax collector. And so he stands at the top of this system. You know, um, if he was just a, if if just run-of-the-mill kind of tax collectors were very unpopular, then you can imagine that Zacchaeus is probably a much worse guy His his LinkedIn profile probably sounded something like this. I'm Zacchaeus and I excel at using the force of conquering foreigners to extort a great deal of wealth from my own people by betraying them over and over again. (laughs) To be a tax collector, in other words, you had to be a special kind of person. Nasty. So Zacchaeus isn't off to a good start as a candidate for mission but it gets even worse. There's a reason Zacchaeus does this job and it's the same reason that people to this day excuse all manner of bad behaviour. Well, one reason, and it's because he's greedy. He wants money. Luke tells us that um, that Zacchaeus is rich and Jericho was a particularly good place to be a tax collector at the time because it was near an important trade route and it had... Um, a famous balsam industry. And I think balsam is a tree which you get an oil from. But anyway, there was a lot of money floating around. At this point, if we've been tracking along with Luke's Gospel, we would know that Jesus, well, he definitely calls out people who hoard a whole great deal of money for themselves. And they get a bit of a raw deal in Luke's Gospel in the Magnificent, which is the song that Mary sings at Jesus' birth, Mary anticipates that Jesus will bring a reversal of fortunes for the rich and poor. In one of Jesus' parables um, in the Gospel of Luke, poor mistreated Lazarus is lifted up in the afterlife, while the unnamed rich man who exploited him in this life um, suffers. And Luke's Gospel also presents the wealth of the rich young ruler, we are probably familiar with that story, um, as an obstacle to salvation. He couldn't detach himself from his possessions to follow Jesus. And so I think we've got to have that in mind, right? Luke wants us to think that Zacchaeus is nasty and greedy and that he won't make well if he encounters Jesus that encounter wouldn't go well if it happened. It'd be laughable to suggest that he could ever be involved in God's mission. And so if the church can sometimes be a little bit of a fizzle, Zacchaeus is much worse, right? He's even an even worse candidate. He's definitely actually having a powerful impact on the lives of the people around him, but it's for all the bad reasons. And so go to my next slide. My next point. The story does continue. Zacchaeus has this life-changing encounter with the catalyst of mission, with Jesus. What brings about this encounter? Well, in verse four, uh, three and four, Zacchaeus wants to get a look at Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. It says, he was trying to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree um, to see him because he was going to pass that way. Now, I think that some people make too much out of Zacchaeus's actions. I think some people think that um, his actions really deep down reveal him to be a nice guy, a seeker, that he thinks that he has some great sense of need that he's going to get fulfilled if he sees Jesus. But notice actually that Luke doesn't give us any details as to why um, Zacchaeus wants to have a look at Jesus. These people also overdo the effort um, that Zacchaeus goes to to get a look at Jesus. Some people describe him almost like he's on this gruelling quest um, to kind of reach his goal, but it's not actually that difficult to climb a few branches of a tree. It's interesting to note that G- that Zacchaeus, as opposed to other people um, in Luke's gospel, he doesn't cry out like the blind man does in the story that is actually before this one, and he doesn't like struggle against the crowd like the woman who touched Jesus's robe and was healed. And so I think there's a temptation to read into Zacchaeus's actions and to speculate about what his motives might be. We want to try and find something in Zacchaeus himself to explain the encounter that Jesus has with him. And it's an interesting tendency that we have, I think. But there's nothing to be found in Zacchaeus. The strategy of climbing the sycamore tree, at best, what it shows us is a lukewarm interest. It would only produce a distant contact between him and Jesus with no communication between them. He wouldn't have been expecting a conversation. It's also possible that his motives were impure Maybe he actually even sensed Jesus to be a threat to his power and position um, in Jericho. And so he wanted to, you know, check out who this guy was. We really don't know because the story doesn't dwell on this point, which is, I think, the point. He's just kind of passive in the story. And, of course, we expect that Jesus will just walk, walk him by. But in verses five to six, there's this abrupt change in the course of the narrative. Zacchaeus has a encounter with Jesus and it's far more than anything he was bargaining for. At best, Zacchaeus is making this lukewarm effort to see Jesus, but Jesus initiates an encounter with him. And we see that Jesus' strategy is full throttle. He doesn't just kind of walk by um, Zacchaeus and you know Zacchaeus gets a look. He doesn't give him a wave. He doesn't give him a nod. He stops his entourage. He leaves the road. He pushes through the crowd. He walks over to the tree. And in verse five, it says, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. The encounter doesn't happen, right? Because Zacchaeus climbed the tree. Luke makes it clear that Jesus is the catalyst of the encounter in this story. He's the one that initiates um, the proceedings. And there's nothing happenstance about this either. Luke actually is trying to, I think, give us the impression that it was planned all along. Upon arriving at the tree, Jesus looks up and he addresses Zacchaeus by name. It's as if he knew who Zacchaeus was. Jesus also says that he must stay at Zacchaeus' house today. And the Greek word that stands behind must is day. Day, I guess that's how you say it. D E I. And it's meant to be a sharp word. In Luke's gospel, it actually carries with it the sense of divine necessity. There's a forcefulness about it. And all of this needs to happen today, right away because it's urgent. And so these details give us the sense that the encounter with Jesus, uh, with Zacchaeus, had been Jesus's intention right from the beginning. Luke is framing the encounter as an essential component of God's eternal divine mission. And the encounter happens Because as verse 10 puts it, the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus bears him down. How then does the encounter unfold? Zacchaeus, as we saw, has been a really bad guy. And so we might expect that when Jesus approaches, that he's gonna hound him for all his bad behaviour, you know, and put him in his place and set him right. But shockingly, it all unfolds with an offer to stay at his house. And that would mean conversation, a meal, friendship even, a connection. And in this culture, eating with people carries a lot of weight, as it does in a lot of cultures today. It's almost even a political statement. It's actually marking out who your group is. And so, you know, even philosophical groups at the time ate together to show that they had a shared unity, identity, purpose, all of that. And so I've been really overdoing this catalyst metaphor, but and this is where Jesus actually differs from a chemical catalyst because a catalyst impacts on a base reaction but the catalyst itself doesn't change, isn't impacted upon. It doesn't change its chemical structure. There there remains a clear separation between the base reaction and the catalyst. But Jesus' approach towards Zacchaeus comes with an offer of intimacy and fellowship. Um, So the Orthodox Metropolitan, which is an Orthodox George of Lebanon, which is a very cool name, he puts it like this. The Saviour amalgamates himself with those who are called to salvation, which is pretty amazing. So verse seven demonstrates that this encounter comes at a cost for Jesus. It says that, all those who saw him began to grumble. And he said, and, and, and said, sorry, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. So, to bring about this fellowship, this encounter with Zacchaeus, and accomplish his mission, Jesus had to contend with the crowd. Jesus had to resist their expectation for social respectability. The people of Jericho are utterly scandalised by the thought of Jesus having anything to do with a tax collector. And this is a common theme throughout Luke's Gospel. They like Jesus' miracles, but they grumble about the company that he keeps. And so Jesus doesn't care. (laughs) He fellowships with those who are on the fringe of society with reckless abandon. He crosses social barriers in order to eat and drink with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, that they may experience the grace of God. And ultimately, these associations have an extraordinary cost. You know, I said, that catalysts aren't impacted upon, they aren't changed. But in a way, Jesus is. He's actually dishonoured because of his associations and it leads to his vilification. And the story that we're looking at today, you would notice that it says that Jesus is on his way, is on his way through Jericho. And what he was doing, he was was on a journey to Jerusalem which ultimately culminates in his death on the cross for us. And it's for these reasons, these associations, these fellowships, that he was so hated by the elites um, that they put him to death. Jesus was willing to die to establish fellowship with sinners, with marginalised people. Um, and probably with people like us. So, could I have my next slide, please? So far, through this story, we've come face to face with the missional God who seeks and pursues fellowship with sinners. And we've seen that Jesus catalyzes a fellowship and relationship with Zacchaeus. Now, verses 6 and 8 show us the reaction that this actually has in Zacchaeus' life, and it is explosive. Remember only a few verses prior that Zacchaeus was nasty and greedy, he was not a good candidate for fellowship and transformation. Now, Jesus had 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 a bit of experience and practice winning over tax collectors in the past. In chapter seven, Jesus was described as a friend of tax collectors. Levi, the tax collector, became even a disciple. So he's clearly good at what he does, but you probably think that, you know, we're facing a chief tax collector here. This is really gonna test his mettle, you know. Maybe it won't be so... um, explosive. If you've played video games in your life, it's a bit like meeting the boss monster at the end. Well, it turns out that Zacchaeus is absolutely not out of God's reach. Um, Even the chief tax collector, right, the worst of the worst, is won over in this encounter with Jesus. Jesus. God's mission to establish friendship with sinners, with us. It crosses all barriers. It crosses all divides. It crosses all obstacles, even those within us. And it succeeds. It comes to fruition. And so over the grumblings of the crowd, Jesus works this powerful, miraculous transformation of Zacchaeus's life. And we really can't overemphasize the impact because it's completely radical. It's completely beyond explanation. We can't put words to it. It's a miracle. It leads completely to the death of Zacchaeus's old self, and it catalyzes an entirely new way of being in the world. And so, verse six pictures Jesus uh, Zacchaeus's initial reaction to. Jesus' command. It says, Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Essentially, I get the picture that Zacchaeus joyfully leaps out of the tree. You see, before anything else, fellowship with with, um, Jesus produces an immediate explosion of joy in this nasty, greedy tax collector it is abundantly clear that Zacchaeus is just a changed man. He's got a changed heart and his inner motives have been transformed. And this is where all mission should begin as a joyful, joyful response to God's work in us. As Leslie Newbingen writes, there has been long a tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected And crucified Jesus is alive is something that can't be suppressed. Now, Jesus' fellowship with Zacchaeus, it also produces a shock wave that extends beyond himself, beyond Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is swept up into the mission of God and he begins to actually participate in it. Verse 8 says that Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And I just want to say that, you know, involvement in God's mission, it starts right away. You know, there isn't a threshold to be reached. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have it all sorted out. Zacchaeus gets involved. And his reaction, it isn't just a new belief. It's not just kind of a spiritual, airy fairy thing. It's not just an emotional thing. It's not just a good feeling. It's actually a new way of life that bursts forward from him, it has a social impact an impact beyond himself. We see in verse eight, Zacchaeus does two things. Firstly, Zacchaeus writes his past wrongs by restoring what he defrauded fourfold. And the Jewish law required that cheaters and robbers, that they they had to make a restitution by giving the original amount and then one fifth extra. Not a very harsh punishment in my opinion, but Zacchaeus surpasses those requirements, seemingly by his own volition, and he actually returns four times the amount um, that he stole, essentially. And then he goes even further. He gives half of what he owns to the poor. Now, it's really easy to mistake, I think, his generosity for a one-time thing. Kind of, you know, just a donation on the side. But it actually more than likely indicates that Zacchaeus is establishing ongoing relationships with people. In Luke's gospel, charity is more sorry. In Luke's gospel, charity is not just like a um, a donation, like in our kind of sense. Rather, it has to do with introducing into your circle, into your kin, those who are unable to reciprocate, to make friends. By giving without expectation of return, to share with the poor is to treat them like friends and family, you know. It's not to treat them like dirt, chucking them some money on the side. And that's a challenge for us. Ultimately, Zacchaeus, in this action, he's actually mirroring the kind of generosity that Jesus showed him. He's creating relationships, fellowships. And then finally, Zacchaeus' response is really radical. In later Judaism, just giving away 20% of your possessions, that was considered the gold standard, very generous. And if you gave away anything more than that, then it very much verged into, you know, silliness. You shouldn't do that. It's not prudent, that kind of thing. But I think that we can safely assume that by the time Zacchaeus, this really bad tax collector, had given and paid back four times the amount that he had stole and then given half of his money away, it would have basically bankrupted him. This isn't just like Bill Gates kind of giving, you know, 10 million on the side when he has $100 billion, right? There's actually a real cost that he he bore that would impact his life. And I'm sure that most of us, because we're very sensible people, would advise against this kind of behaviour. We worry about what we will what will remain for us, how we will maintain our standard of living, what will guarantee our future. But Zacchaeus's reaction is completely uninfluenced, it seems, by concerns like this. Zacchaeus doesn't have a thought for prudence. He has experienced the infinite generosity of God and the only proper response to that generosity is to be generous in return. And so all of this shows us that God's mission isn't just limited to changing um, our individual hearts, which of course is a big part of it, but there are also flow-on effects. The systems, the society, the culture and community around Zacchaeus are obviously going to be impacted. And the story invites each of us to, to reflect on the systems, the society, the ways that we are involved in the world around us. We can't anymore pretend to be righteous while we're profiting from systems that crush other people. And so we need to examine all areas of our lives, the economic domain, the money, our jobs, our relationships, and maybe actually some radical action is in order. For instance, maybe it means forgoing a job opportunity that has a really good price tag attached, but it isn't, you know, good for the world. Ultimately, as God changes our hearts, we'll focus outward. Our behaviour will change and will impact the world around us. So this is where I want to finish. So not much longer. <laughs> we started by examining Zacchaeus. He was really nasty and greedy, we saw, and he definitely, definitely, definitely wasn't in our minds, a good candidate to participate in God's mission. But then we saw that Jesus initiated an encounter with him and it was transformative. We've just looked at the explosion that resulted, that was brought about by this encounter. And so now to finish up, I think it's just really important that we get the order of all of this right. The order of events in Luke's um, story is not that, Zacchaeus was loved and accepted by Jesus because he did good works. The order was um, that he did good things because he was loved and accepted by Jesus without any conditions, with no ifs, no maybes, no buts. And so Zacchaeus, he doesn't go off to Bible college he doesn't get on a plane, whatever it is. Instead, Jesus has graced him with a relationship, with fellowship. And where Jesus is, their salvation is, Jesus declares in verse nine, today salvation has come to this house because this, too, this man too is a son of Abraham. And so it was only when Zacchaeus had experienced the compassion and generosity of God toward him, a nasty, greedy man, that his heart was transformed and he became compassionate and generous. So I began with the question, how will mission be catalyzed in our church, in our lives, in our community? Well, the Zacchaeus story, I think, gives us a way forward. We won't be changed by trying harder. It is the generous, gracious mission of God to establish fellowship and a relationship with us. And that is the catalyst of all change, all heart change, all life change, all social change. And the Apostle Paul understood this. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul wants the people to give an offering to the poor. And interestingly, what he doesn't do, he doesn't command them, which he could have done. He doesn't demand them. He doesn't kind of put all this pressure on them. Instead, Paul vividly says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. When he says, you know the grace, he's moving them to recollect, to remember the gospel, the mission of God towards them. Paul is saying, reflect on his costly grace. Reflect on that grace until you are changed into generous people by the gospel in your hearts. So the solution to our kind of inactivity, our apathy is not to do a whole lot of stuff. It's to reorientate our lives to the generosity of Christ expressed in his mission, to fix our eyes on Jesus. This is the news of what God has done to reach us, the gospel. It's not advice about how to reach God. Jesus, whose love is more extravagant than we can measure, came entered the world, gave his life on the cross, was physically resurrected so that through the grace of God, fellowship with him and a new transformed life is available to us. When we encounter Jesus, he will light up our lives with joy and purpose. Let's pray. And before we pray, actually, to encourage us to use the worship time after it's a time for a response. It's an opportunity to um, reorientate to the Gospel, to what Jesus has done for us. If you like prayer, if you f- feel like you'd want to do something to signify that, come to the front um, and there'll be people to, available to pray for you. So let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are a missional God Thank you that you give us your spirit also. Lord, we pray that that truth would really sink into our hearts, that it would transform us. And we pray that as we go into our lives, um, that we would be willing at times to be radical if need be. Um, Yeah, that we would... um, Yeah, allow allow, allow You to lead us and prompt us and to guide us. That we would become, yeah, participants in Your mission, God. Lord, we're, we're struck by Your grace and generosity to people like us who didn't deserve Your love, but whom You love and sent Your Son for. Amen.